The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Congratulations on making it to the third episode. In the first two episodes, we began to ask and answer one of many classical questions posed by atheists, secular humanists, the world, and sadly by many who should know better, but have perhaps never done their theological homework. In this case... The question asked was, if God is a God of love, then how could God order the killing of every Canaanite man, woman, and child? Previously, during part one, we discussed four issues, including the lack of intellectual sincerity, intellectual honesty, the hypocrisy and lack of ultimate authority possessed by atheists and secular humanists who are generally the ones asking these types of questions. In episode two, we discussed five additional issues including God's sovereignty, 
God's property rights, God's justice, the importance of separation, as well as wartime ethics. In this episode, we intend to continue answering our question, as well as completing the accompanying discussion and study. As before, our goal is to come away with a better understanding of God's nature, as well as our relationship to Him. Next, we have number 10. In this episode, we begin with the 10th issue, which is a failure to properly understand the continuity and context of God's Word. The comments of Dawkins in the earlier episode are all too representative of many who seem to labor under the confusion and inability to reconcile the Old and New Testaments. As was pointed out in the episode entitled, The Bible, A Message from God to Man, from God's perspective, as well as a comprehensive understanding of the entire Bible, the Bible is one integrated message and revelation from God to his creation, man. The central message from cover to cover is to demonstrate the person, nature, and character of God and his relationship to man as ultimately exemplified in and through his son, Jesus. Unfortunately, all too many read the Bible superficially and come away believing that there is an angry, legalistic, and warlike God of the Old Testament, known by the name of Jehovah, and there is another, separate God of the New Testament named Jesus, who is meek, mild, and loving. But the truth is that God reveals himself as one God, demonstrating and manifesting himself in three persons, throughout the entirety of the Bible. God is in fact a plurality consisting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom agree together in the unity of one. So, as we read and study Scripture, and in particular the Old Testament, we need to understand that the stories and incidents written therein are multifaceted. Each is there to potentially reveal many things beyond the mere historical narrative. On the second level, as was pointed out, we see many types and shadows which ultimately point to the substance of Jesus, or the church, or God's elect, heaven, salvation, sanctification, and, well, the list goes on. And on a third level, we see God's nature and his relationship to man revealed to man. Case in point, we have the allegation, or, if you like, the observation that the Old Testament seems to reveal an angry, vengeful, warlike God. Question, why? Answer, well, perhaps God is revealing the logical consequence 
of what creation looks like when man removes himself from the covering grace and peace of God given to man at creation and chooses instead to attempt to replace that grace with the knowledge of good and evil apart from God. If so, then it is not God who is out of step, it is man. The New Testament tells the story of the same God and our relationship to him when the relationship is restored and reconciled through Christ. So there is one God and three persons. New Testament or old, there is one truth. Whenever or wherever any man places their faith and trust in God with their whole heart, then they are at peace with God. Conversely, whenever and wherever man rebels against God, it is that man who remains separated from God headed on a road to eternal destruction. Since the inception of sin and rebellion, God has been in the process of reconciliation for those whom are called, while simultaneously and systematically God is defeating and destroying sin, rebellion, and Satan through Jesus' birth, life, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and return as King of Kings, the Bible is also a chronicle of this war between God and Satan here on earth. It is a story of many battles, past, present, and future. The outcomes of these battles and of the war itself are more than simple territorial disputes. Worldly wars, however noble or necessary, only deal with temporal issues of death and dominion. Whereas the cosmic war between God and Satan has its, as its outcome the eternal destiny of every man, woman, and child throughout history. Now, it doesn't make things any prettier but it does put things into perspective to remember that it was not God, but rather Satan who initiated this war. It was man who chose to lose faith and trust in God and believe Satan's propaganda instead. It was man who disinvested himself of the covering tools necessary to alleviate and prevent this war. It is man who chose to side in rebellion with Satan. It is man who puts himself in the path of God's judgment, wrath, vengeance, and destruction on Satan. It is man who blames God for what man is responsible for. It is God who by all rights would be justified to allow all mankind to perish and to be eternally punished for his rebellion. Instead, it is by God's sovereign grace that he has chosen any to be saved. 
So, when we look at the incident of the Canaanites through the correct prism, we get a very different perspective. We then have to ask two questions. One, is what happened to the Canaanites an isolated incident? Two, was it God who placed the Canaanites in the path of destruction? Or did they place themselves in that path without regard? Now, in the case of the first question, i.e., is it what happened to the Canaanites an isolated incident? The answer to that question is no. We have the consistent record throughout the Bible that many thousands were destroyed as a direct result of their continued and relentless choices to rebel and sin against God. We also have the consistent record that many were saved as a direct result of God's sovereign grace. The first case of this we find is in the flood, where the entire world that was, was consumed as a result of man's rebellion, sin, and wickedness. Simultaneously, eight were spared by God's grace through faith. Again, in Sodom and Gomorrah, God again utterly destroyed these cities and their entire population. Simultaneously, by God's grace, three were saved due to God's grace through faith. During the Exodus, God sent ten plagues which destroyed many for their rebellion. Simultaneously, thousands were saved because of God's grace and faithfulness. Lest we forget, God has yet to pour out his wrath upon the entire world during the Great Tribulation to deal with unrepented sin and rebellion. And again, simultaneously, God promises that his church, the elect, the outcalled ones, are not appointed to wrath because his wrath has already fallen upon Jesus. So, provided by God's grace we have placed our faith in Jesus, then by his grace we are covered from his wrath to come. And finally, Jesus is going to return to the world in a very different role than that of the meek, mild, and loving philosopher, which many would try to limit him to. We read of that role in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Quote, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, unquote. In answer to the second question, i.e., was it God who placed the Canaanites in the path of destruction, or did they place themselves in that path without regard? The answer to the second question is that it is man who is responsible for his consequences. Individually, or in pairs, as a community, or as a nation, one or many thousands, it is man who is called to submit, obey, surrender, repent, be reconciled, be at peace with God, or remain in rebellion. From the beginning, the dynamic has been and always remains the same. According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, quote, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, unquote. As has been pointed out, there is a frequent confusion and errant view that the Old Testament, depicting one God who is angry, vengeful, and warlike, and the New Testament, which depicts a God comprised solely of love, equally for everyone, regardless of anything. But again, the reality is that there is only one God of all scripture who reveals himself in three persons. In the Old Testament, once we pass Genesis 3, we see a relationship torn, separated, deteriorating, and dying between man and God due to man's sin and rebellion. We see the perfect will and desire of a holy God to fellowship with man who has fallen into rebellion and wanted sin. We see cosmic war between God, Satan, and sin. We see God who is in the process of defeating Satan, sin, and rebellion. We see the logical result of man's rebellion against God, which is his anger, vengeance, and war on those aspects of sin and rebellion, as well as those men, women, and children who are aligned with sin and rebellion rather than faith and trust in God. In the New Testament, we meet Jesus, the Messiah, God, the second person of the Trinity, who has come in the flesh to exercise God's infinite love to reconcile all who would, by his grace, have faith in God's imputed righteousness. In this instance, if we are paying attention, we still see God's wrath, anger, and vengeance. But those justifiable attributes and reactions which all men rightly deserve throughout history, 
are instead poured out upon his son, Jesus, who willingly accepts that punishment on our behalf, so that those who are called to faith in his covering sacrifice may be forever forgiven and absolved of that same punishment. We also discuss the fact that Scripture reveals that it is the same Jesus who returns to earth to reign as King of Kings and who executes his final vengeance and wrath upon Satan and sin while rewarding those whom he has called to be redeemed from his wrath. While this summary overview of God's nature goes a long way to resolve some confusion, some would still struggle. Many would grapple with the idea that Israel, who represents God's people, are the instrument to wipe out the Canaanites. If what we have discussed regarding justice and separation is true, and if God is still the same, then an important question arises. What prevents the suggestion that God's people would not repeat what happened to the Canaanites or someone similar today? Well, the answer is that absent national war, God's people, his outcalled ones, the church, live today under the covenant of grace. This period was ushered in by Jesus the Christ and remains in force until his return as King of Kings. Thus, while there may be individuals or groups equal to, or even worse than, the Canaanites, they were and remain the responsibility of God as to their fate. God still desires and promotes separation on the part of his people. But presently, separation and any other issues are not accomplished by force or the sword. Instead, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-6, through 6, quote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled." Unquote. Having said this, some may still protest with scriptural statements like that of Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, which says, quote, I am the Lord, I change not, unquote. Well, this is true. God does not change. There are, however, many attributes, qualities, and natures about God which we as humans forget, overlook, misunderstand, or simply are incapable of fully comprehending. Even reading the entirety of the same verse quoted out of context, we learn a profound truth. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, quote, For I am the Lord, I change not. 
Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed, unquote. When we add the remainder of the verse and place it into context with the theological whole, what we learn is this. God is saying that if it were not for the fact that he is faithfully consistent to his promises, we would all be consumed due to our unrighteousness. It is only because God is good, patient, and gracious that he delivers those who are called to faith in him. This brings us to number 11. The 11th issue deals with intrusion ethics. In order to explain what this means, it must be understood that prior to the fall of man, as scripture reveals, everything that God created was created by God out of nothing. Nothing that was made was made without or apart from God. All that God made was perfect and very good. Man, God's crowning work of creation, was given the freedom of choice as an either-or proposition given as a commandment. The choice was either to trust and have faith in the covering of God's image-bearing qualities bestowed to them at creation, or to turn to the pursuit of self-sufficiency promised by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first choice of faith and trust carried the guarantee of the continued covering of God's image and of one-to-one -one fellowship with God in paradise. The second carried the consequence of death and separation from God. From the standpoint of God's justice, righteousness, and holiness, God had every right to immediately impose the penalty of physical and spiritual death to Adam and Eve. By extension, all mankind was and remains under the sentence of death and separation chosen by Adam and Eve. Thus, Adam, Eve, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Canaanites, and everyone else throughout history, apart from some intrusive redemptive act by God, were and are and remain under the just penalty of death caused by Adam and Eve's choice. God would have been within his rights to skip immediately from the act of Adam and Eve's disobedience and rebellion against him to killing them both and casting them into eternal, conscious, everlasting punishment. At this point, any arguments against future events, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, the Canaanites, and any other perceived injustices or inequities of God on the part of skeptics would be non-existent since none of us would be here today to debate them if that were the case. Fortunately, God had revealed himself also to be a God of grace, mercy, compassion, love, and patience. Consequently, 
God has thankfully exercised those attributes in abundance from the foundation of the world beginning at the moment of the fall and throughout human history. Were this not the fact, we would know nothing since there would be nothing to know given we would never have existed. God reveals that he exercises all of his various attributes according to his own sovereign will, according to his own good pleasure, according to his own perfect plan. While we do not know all the details of God's plan, or why he chooses to do the things he does, he does reveal that he is in control of all things, and that all things which he chooses to do work together toward his overall perfect plan for those whom he has called to be his own. Instead of killing everyone as deserved, God has chosen to be patient in his grace and mercy to allow allow time for as many as will, by his grace, to be called to receive conviction, confession, conversion, confirmation, and consummation. We don't know how long God has determined for this period. So far, it has lasted some 6,000 years. We don't know exactly when it will end. What we should never forget is that all mankind was, is, and remains under the just wrath of a holy God. It is only because God himself has chosen to intrude himself into the individual moments of the stream of human history at times that any of us have the ability to give thanks for what God has done for us. It is easy to focus on the moments which man looks at in his secular fleshly mind and accuse God of being unfair wrong, or evil. In reality, none of these events would be there as a historical event had it not been for the grace, mercy, and compassion of God who granted the pardon for those in question to exist and thereby and therefore provide the future episode wherein we later and herein debate. Perhaps we would be better served to focus on the myriad of events wherein God time and again intrudes into the stream of history to rescue an all too often undeserving, unthankful, and unrepentant person. Number 12. The twelfth issue deals with God's mercy. Forgetting or refusing to acknowledge the behaviors and character discussed in the previous issue, the atheist and secular humanist would accuse God of being unmerciful in his destruction of the Canaanites. They would consider the matter of a rush to judgment where God either did not give them an adequate warning or he did not give them sufficient time to repent. 
In truth, both of these claims are disingenuous and dishonest. If, in fact, we return to Genesis chapter 15, we find Abraham receiving a vision from God, along with a series of predictions and instructions from God regarding Abraham's descendants. In verses 13 through 16, we find the following, quote, And he, referring to God, said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, I would draw your attention to recall that according to Judges chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, the names Hivites, Girgashites, Jebusites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Canaanites are names used more broadly to refer to all the inhabitants of the land, often generally referred to as the Canaanites. So, what the verses from Genesis reveal is that the situation of wickedness and depravity found in the Canaanites had been proliferating for centuries testifying to God's patience and forbearance toward the people in the land of Canaan despite their sin. By the time we come to their destruction, their immoral behavior can be traced back six centuries, at the very least, back to the time of Abraham in Genesis 15. Well, I don't know about your definitions of patience and mercy, but by most, if not all standards, 600 years goes beyond the limits of patience and mercy, unless you're God. Also, the second claim that the Canaanites had no warning is also empty. In the case of Ham, he lived with his father Noah, who was considered a righteous man. Doing the math, we find that from the time Ham was born until Noah's death, Ham had the privilege of 450 years of teaching, instruction, and wisdom regarding God. Ham also saw the conditions prior to and during and after the flood, which was poured out upon the world as a result of man's wickedness. Given all of this and more, Ham should have qualified as one of the most godly men who ever lived. Likewise, it is possible that Canaan had access to Noah for as much as 350 years after the flood. When we look at it, Canaan and his descendants had the same knowledge as all of Noah's children 
because the Bible, which was not yet to be written by Moses, began as an oral tradition handed down from father to son, generation to generation. It is also possible, if not likely, that what became known as the Genesis record was written down in some form prior to Moses. More importantly, the Canaanites lived elbow to elbow with those who they were closely or distantly related to and who still lived, structured and acted out their lives according to the commands originally given by God to man. If this wasn't enough, the constant reminders by God, like the destruction of the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, and other well-known exploits of the Israelites conquering their enemies by God's might, stood as constant reminders of the truth. Indeed, going one step further, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that God reveals his nature in one way or another to all mankind. Quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Unquote. Thus, in the end, what we must come to terms with is that the Canaanites knew of and about the true and living God of the Bible. However, despite knowing this, they made the conscious decision individually and as a people to rebel against God with callous disregard to all that God decrees. It is also clear that the Canaanite culture of rebellion, wickedness, and idolatry went far beyond isolated incidents to becoming ingrained, institutionalized societal norms. Worse yet, the larger the Canaanite society became, the stronger and more widespread and more pervasive these behaviors were. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part four. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.
trust 